0: It's not uncommon for me to have a number of conversations with people who are looking for a church. That tends to come up in conversations I have with a number of people often. And one of the one of the refrains I often hear is, "Do you know how hard it is to find a good church?" I've heard that a few times. Uh, There was a point in time when my wife and I were even looking for a church when we found Summit Woods, and it's a challenging thing to find a good church. Finding a good church is not an easy task, is it? I mean, we have, we have so many choices, don't we? We have so many kinds of churches all around us. Variety of associations, styles, sizes, emphases. It's really a daunting task. Quite a number of you, perhaps, are visiting. And you're saying, yes, we're looking for a church. Is this a good one? And you should be careful in your evaluations I think you should be careful and critical as you're visiting and evaluating this church any church but what criteria are you using what is the criteria in your in your mind that you're using to evaluate whether a church is a good church or not Maybe you're looking at the platform presentation, you're looking at the size and you're considering that, you're looking at a, and maybe even looking for a particular style of church. You're looking at the variety of emphases that might go on in a particular uh, church ministry. Maybe you're wondering if the church really accommodates the culture or not. What you need to keep asking yourself as you're thinking through the criteria for finding a church is, would the criteria that I'm using to determine a church actually guarantee a spiritually effective church, or would it even guarantee a spiritually legitimate church? Now maybe you have a different set of criteria, and you're evaluating the church, and you're saying, I'm evaluating the church on how they use the Bible. Do they use the Bible? How do they use the Bible? You're, you're thinking through what we're singing, and uh, you're thinking, do we sing good songs? Do we have rich lyrics? What's the theological bent of the church? Perhaps that's something in your mind you're thinking, what is the theological bent of this church? And I would guess that there's a number of you who are thinking through those kinds of criteria. They can be good, but I want to ask you something about even that kind of criteria would these elements actually guarantee that you have found a legitimate gospel ministry or that you're hearing a legitimate spiritual leader? Well, the preaching sounds biblical. They seem to sing biblical songs. They seem to have the right theological bent. Is that what you're trusting in that would guarantee a legitimate church? You say, well, if it's not that, what is it? How can you have trust in the spiritual legitimacy of a church? Now, I kind of think as I'm reading through this book that that's forefront in the minds of the Thessalonians when Paul is penning this letter. From looking at all of the details that we know about this congregation, I would surmise that some in this fledgling church have internal doubts as to whether it's worth it to keep coming to the church in Thessalonica, and that's a big deal. Because in Thessalonica in the first century, when Paul writes this letter, this is the only church that exists in that city of 200,000 people. If you stop going to that church, you're making a statement, not just about your criteria, but what you think of Christianity. So to leave this church was essentially to leave the faith. Now, why is it that I suggest that defection is a potential problem in Thessalonica? Well, I do so because as I read through all of chapter two, and if you do that sometime soon, or perhaps you did it this week in anticipation of our time in the word together, you're going to find that Paul's a little bit on the defensive here. At At the very least, he's writing in such a way that he is pleading with the congregation, the Thessalonians, to give careful consideration to the legitimacy of his ministry when he preached among them when he first came to them. And he doesn't want them to leave. He doesn't want them to walk away. And he doesn't know that they won't. He doesn't want them to look at the church and think, this place has no real spiritual substance in it. Now, we don't know all of the specifics, of what was potentially shaking these believers, but we can likely presume that it had something to do with some kind of external opposition. And it was creating some kind of personal and cultural pressures around these believers that was breeding, or at least it had the potential to breed, internal doubts as to whether or not it was worth being associated with this congregation or not. Maybe even doubts in their mind as to whether it would be good to associate with Christianity at all. If you remember the scene that we studied some time ago from Acts 17, Paul's presence in that city created a citywide riot that led him to run out of the city and was even chased out of a second city out of that. In this letter, chapter 1, verse 6, suggests that the Thessalonians were actually becoming Christians amidst much Opposition. Chapter 2, verse 14 of this letter indicates that the native citizens of Thessalonica were actually persecuting the people in that church in Thessalonica. And in chapter 3, Paul even expresses his concern that they're even going to stay in the faith. He doesn't know. That's why he had to send Timothy to find out if all of his efforts when he ministered to that place were actually in vain or not. He didn't know. External pressures are creating potential or even real inward doubts about whether Paul's ministry is a spiritually legitimate one or not. So when we come to chapter 2 in our ongoing study, we find Paul defending the spiritual legitimacy of his gospel ministry especially in the first 12 verses. This is Paul defending his ministry. And he wants them to see this is a legitimate ministry and you know it is a legitimate ministry. In fact, he repeats that phrase, as you know, multiple times. Do you see it in verse one? For you yourselves know, even verse two, After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, you know what was going on in us. You know why we came to you. You know what kind of opposition we had. You know it. Verse 9, for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship. This is what you know about me. Verse 10, you are witnesses of how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved. Verse 11, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging. This church knows a lot about Paul. They know about his ministry, and he appeals to that personal investment of his life in that congregation so that they wouldn't run away. In fact, every time he makes an appeal to what they know about him, he's essentially saying, I want you to evaluate it again. I want you to think again, why is this ministry a legitimate ministry? You know it is, but think on it again. Rehearse it again and again and again. And I would suggest to you, my friends, that that, that's important for us. When whatever church we're in, however long we're in that church, just keep bringing to mind again and again, what is it that makes for a spiritually legitimate church and ministry? What makes it spiritually effective? Now, what Paul emphasizes, we've already noted in chapter one, because he's going to do it again here in chapter two, he emphasizes when he talks about the legitimacy of his ministry, he emphasizes his preaching ministry. That's what he emphasizes. He began that conversation back in chapter 1, verse 5. Our gospel did not come to you in word only. He's talking about his preaching ministry when he first came to them. He's going to pick up that again. And in chapter 2, the first 12 verses, it's all about his preaching ministry when he came to them. And why they know it's true. You see it in verse 1. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain... After we had suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to do what? To speak to you. It's his preaching. To speak to you. Verse three, he refers to his exhortation to them. In verse four, he is approved by God with the gospel, so we speak. He's talking about his preaching. Verse 8, we imparted to you the gospel of God. That's his preaching ministry. Verse 11, you know how we were exhorting and encouraging you. He's talking about his preaching ministry, but not just his preaching ministry. As we will see throughout this chapter, they're not merely to evaluate his sermons. They're actually called to evaluate the atmosphere of his life along with his sermons. Also that they would remember, they were exposed to a legitimate leader, a legitimate preacher of the gospel. So don't shrink away from that gospel. You shrink away from this, you don't have anything left of spiritual legitimacy. So that brings us to ask and answer the question, what is it then that we should be evaluating for a ministry that is spiritually legitimate or even a leader who has spiritual legitimacy now I'm going to outline for us what the next number of weeks will look like in our study together I know some of you are going to see a slide and you're going to think I've got to get every word down don't feel that you need to do that you'll still be able to sleep tonight if you don't get all this down I promise but let me just go through what we're going to see in the first 12 verses here there's four different elements that we're going to consider when evaluating the spiritual legitimacy of a church or even the legitimacy of a leader. Just four different elements of spiritual legitimacy to evaluate. This would be good for you to to write down as we walk through all of these and eventually use as a criteria. Is this how I'm thinking about church? Is this how I'm thinking about what is spiritually true and faithful? Well, What are these elements? I'm just gonna throw them up and then week after week, we're gonna unpack these. Verses one to four, you should evaluate the presentation, the presentation of those who deliver God's word. We'll talk about more of what that means in a moment, but the presentation, how do they bring the word to you? How do they present it to you? And I'm not talking just about pulpit presence and style and mannerisms, we'll unpack this more. How are they bringing the word to you, presenting it to you? Verses 5 to 8, you should evaluate the motivations of those who preach God's word. You say, evaluate the motivations. How can I know your motives? Well, as he lives among you, you'll be able to see his motivations. As the elders of the church live among you, you'll be able to begin to discern what drives them and motivates them to do ministry. It will come out. The longer they're with you, the longer you live with them, the more you see. Verses 9 to 10, you should evaluate the lifestyle of those who teach God's word. How do they live with you? What does the consistent lifestyle of their behavior look like? Last, evaluate the application from those who bring God's word. How do they take the Bible and apply it to the life of the church? How do they apply the Bible to the life of the church? It's one thing to have an effective preaching ministry, but that only goes so far, right? You have to be able to apply the Bible to the actual details of the members in the congregation as they're living out their life. How do you do that? And these evaluations, Paul says, you know them. You know all about them because you know me. I was with you and friends, he was with them for no longer than the, the longest we could surmise is that he was with them about three months. But he lived every day with them and in such a way that they would know so much of his life, his motives, his lifestyle, his behavior, how he applied the word, that they knew that his life and ministry were spiritually legitimate. It's great evaluations here to determine what makes up an effective church and a legitimate ministry. Well, this morning we're going to focus on the first element to consider in evaluating the spiritual legitimacy of a ministry and its ministers And we're going to look at the first four verses, and it concentrates on how, if you looked at it from Paul's perspective, how he presented the gospel to the Thessalonians. How did he bring it to them? How did he present it to them? So that they would have confidence, so that they would know this is really spiritually true and faithful. So what are the areas of presentation that we should look at and we should consider when we're evaluating if a ministry is legitimate? Well, this morning we're going to look at three. Three areas to assess in the presentation of the gospel to a church. Three areas to assess the presentation of God's word in evaluating the legitimacy, the spiritual legitimacy of a ministry or even a minister. Three different areas. Let's start with the first one that's found in verse one. First area to assess. Is the word presented with spiritual substance? Is the word presented with spiritual substance? Look at that opening phrase. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. In other words, you know that there was some substance to this presentation of the gospel to you. And you know it. It wasn't hidden. Paul reminds him, I lived among you so significantly that my life and my preaching were completely intertwined with one another. To listen to Paul preach was to know how he lived. To look at his life is to hear how he preached. I mean, he didn't have much more to say outside of his sermons because they reflected how he lived. He lived with the flock, among the people. He didn't merely speak to them on Sunday. He lived among them all week in the most visible and open ways. His home was open, his heart was visible, his life was intertwined with their lives. So much so that he could appeal to the depths of what they knew about him as confirmation of the legitimacy of his preaching. And notice what they knew about him specifically, that our coming, when we came to you and we preached to you, we presented the gospel to you, Our coming was not in vain. It was not in vain. When he came, as it's recorded in Acts chapter 17, when the church was founded and they first embraced the gospel, and he spent about three months of time, day in and day out with them, that investment of ministry, they knew that his time with them was not in vain. Now what does he mean by that? What does he mean by it was not in vain? Well, there's a number of ways you could take that term that's used in the Greek New Testament and, and understand it. You could read it to say it was not without results. In fact, one, one Bible actually says that. One Bible translation actually uses that. It was not without results. And obviously there were results. I mean, we just looked at that in the last chapter and, and this is actually connected to that. You see the, the word for. All of this is connected to what he's rehearsed about how this church responded to the word when he preached to them. So there were results. But more than likely, this is not referring to the results that he saw from his preaching. That's not what he's emphasizing. It's more likely that he's referring to as what commentator Robert Thomas notes as a qualitative force behind this word in vain. Meaning this, he didn't come to them without substance in his preaching. Not the result of his preaching, but in his preaching. Because he goes on in the rest of this chapter to defend how he preaches, not what happened as a result of it, but how he preached. So you know that when I preached among you, there was an atmosphere around me in my life of substance. In other words, Paul was not an empty suit. What he said from the pulpit, he tried to live out among the congregation. He depended on the gospel just as much as he was urging the the flock to depend upon the gospel. And they got to see that. This isn't a statement that he was just digging deep into the substance of the content of the Bible, though I'm sure he was. But his coming, his teaching, his living with them was of legitimate spiritual substance. In fact, there's something interesting here if you if you pull it out and you were to look into the original of this, the, just the, the verb there, was not, is in what we call in Greek the perfect tense, which is fascinating to me as I study this. I know I'm gonna geek out here a little bit on you, but it's really fascinating. The perfect tense says something started in the past and it keeps coming up and it continues up to this very moment that I'm writing you. What does that mean? When I came and preached to you, I had such substance that that substance of my life and ministry is still lingering among you right now and you know it. That's a pretty powerful ministry, isn't it? That it just keeps going. He's not been with them for some time. They don't even know how he's doing necessarily in detail. He's gone. But his life was of such substance that it lingers on with them even to this very moment. Now, how do we know that he had such a ministry and life and preaching of spiritual substance? Well, likely verse 1 here is a general statement. And verses 2 through 12 are going to unpack what that substance is. You know that we didn't come to you in vain. And the next word in verse 2 is, but after we had suffered and he starts unpacking what that substance in his life and ministry consisted of. So the rest of the chapter essentially is going to show what the spiritual substance is. This is so necessary for us in local church ministry to think of. What I say or any elder says from this pulpit, what any person who comes up here and it opens the word of God and begins to teach us from the pulpit what we teach in a classroom what we instruct even in the counseling room should be the same thing that we ourselves are living in depending on whatever I'm preaching to you has to govern me too preaching teaching, shepherding, discipling leading is not how I make a living It is living. It is life. It is what our life should consist of. And so, I'm burdened by this. I'm challenged by this to live with you in such a way that you can actually see me depending on the message of the gospel that I'm urging you to depend on as well. That I'm personally applying the scriptures to my own heart, not just yelling at you on Sunday that I'm governing my behavior and my thinking by that message, that I can be confronted by that same message and respond the way I think you should respond if you were confronted by this message. Now, this is not to suggest that a pastor can't sin or struggle or even have seasons of intense challenge with sin or doubts and fears. I, I hope that's not <laughs> the case. I was reading a humorous note by Philip Ryken this week in, He was talking about the perfect pastor. You know the perfect pastor? You don't? (laughs) Dan knows me as he knows. So if you had one, here's what he would look like. Perfect pastor, he condemns sin, but never upsets anyone. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight, and he's also the janitor. He makes $60 a week and gives about $50 a week to the poor. He is 28 years old and has been preaching for 30 years. (laughs) The perfect pastor smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. He spends all his time evangelizing the unchurched and is always in his office when needed. Yeah, that's the perfect pastor, isn't it? No, we know that's unrealistic. We know that's unrealistic. We know that... Preachers sin. They're, they're just like you. They're human beings under the curse, under the fall, and we struggle and we get frustrated and we have the, the same challenges that you have. The issue isn't do you have a guy in front of you who doesn't struggle. The issue is, is he fighting? The issue is, is he taking the very word and with you trying to work through that so that he becomes more like the Lord as well? That's the issue. But how significant would it be for you to see and to have a life lived alongside elders in your church who struggle with sin and they labor to teach the word and apply it to their heart and you get to see it and you see them depending on the word that they preach and teach to you and even counsel to you. You see it in them and you see them overcoming their sinful challenges and you watch them struggle through tears and issues at home and with the flock and you get to be a part of that and you watch that happen, would you have greater confidence in the gospel if you could watch that take place? Would that not be a sign of spiritual substance in a ministry? So again, you could have the right bent in theology. You could have a guy who can present the gospel well from the pulpit. You could sing the right lyrics, but do you have someone and elders in the church teaching you of spiritual substance. And, and I just want to remind you, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming, including his compatriots, right? Silas and Timothy, they all lived this way. As the elders of our church should live this way. And the deacons of our church should live this way. And the Sunday school teachers, the equipping class teachers of our church should live this way together together a life of substance is a life of applying the word to the details of life and if you could live close enough to that to see it and to hear it it would begin to validate the legitimacy the spiritual legitimacy of a ministry well let's look at a second area to assess the presentation of God's word in evaluating if a leader or even a ministry is spiritually legitimate Secondly, it's found in verse 2. Is the word presented with Godward conviction? Is the word presented with Godward conviction? Here's where we start seeing the substance of Paul's life and ministry. In verse 2, but it wasn't in vain, it wasn't empty, it had substance, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. They they knew what happened to Paul before he arrived on the scene in the city of Thessalonica. So Acts chapter 17 is when he comes to Thessalonica. Acts 16 is when he is in Philippi, about 100 miles east of Thessalonica. And when he went to Philippi, It was massive highs spiritually and the darkest of lows. Uh, We won't take all the time to go back and read it all, but just to review it, Acts 16 verse 14 says that Lydia, you remember Lydia? This woman who was, was devout and seeking the Lord. She's converted and others are converted and a church has begun and it's a, a wonderful move of the Lord. Just, it seems to come from out of nowhere. And then the problems begin. There was a slave girl with a spirit of divination who had brought her masters a lot of money. And she kept following Paul around and crying out, These men are slaves of the Most High God, and they're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, at first, you might think, that's awesome. We've got we got somebody else walking around, but the text goes on to say she did it day after day after day. And Paul might have had a little moment of weakness it says he got annoyed I don't know if that's annoyed in a godly way he got annoyed and he turned around and cast out that evil spirit from that girl and said enough, stop I can do my own preaching here that left her masters enraged why? you mess with a pagan's money and you're going to find their anger that's what he did the text says, they, <laughs> he left her masters with no profit. So they seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the marketplace, the Agora, in front of the authorities, likely before the Bama seat. If you've ever been in one of those ancient Agora's, you can see where the that seat is, a, a place where the authorities would stand elevated. You'd stand underneath them and they would pronounce judgment over you. And the accusations were made and that they were proclaiming unlawful customs in their area. There's a crowd that was stirred up against them. All the rabble was stirred up against them. They started beating Paul and Silas with rods and they put them in prison and they fastened their feet in stocks. It was public humiliation. And what was Paul and Silas' response? Well, at night they started singing hymns of praise to God. And in God's grace, he provided an earthquake. I've never thought that when I've been through an earthquake and I've been through some, that that was a, a grace gift from God. But in Paul's case, it certainly was. The earthquake came, the doors were open. the jailer is absolutely unnerved by it all. He runs in and finds Paul and Silas still there, unfastened their chains, and they're there. And the jailer who had been listening to these guys sing and had seen what had happened in their life came under the conviction of the Spirit and was converted. Paul and Silas were ordered to be released later. And Paul didn't want any part of just being released remember he said I'm a Roman citizen you have beaten me publicly and what he meant by that one commentator said this thus witnessed and endorsed by a sizable proportion of the Philippian populace including a substantial number of fellow Romans their degradation could not have been more complete uncontested, the shame of their beating and bonds would henceforth obtrude upon all social relations in Philippi. In other words, what they went through in such public humiliation left them where no one in the city would have anything to do with them. When Paul says, you know how we were mistreated in Philippi, I'm not sure we catch the weight of that. No one would have anything to do with him. He finishes up his ministry. He goes back to this small group of believers who were freshly converted, says goodbye to them and moves on. And that's how he showed up in Thessalonica. And he says, you know how we showed up. It wasn't in despair. We didn't come with discouragement. We didn't come in here complaining that we wanted to quit, that nobody loves us. We weren't questioning God. We weren't questioning his purposes. We weren't saying, God, why does this have to be so difficult? Why does the ministry of your gospel have to have this much opposition and leave people publicly shamed like this? Why? That's not how Paul came. When he showed up in Thessalonica after being so shamed, he said, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you amidst much opposition. Isn't this fascinating? He shows up in Thessalonica after being freshly beaten, and what does he get in Thessalonica? Another beating. The opposition, the humiliation, the persecution did not end when they left Philippi. And he got to see the supernatural work of God convert more people and another church started. But we had much opposition, he says. That's a strong word. It's the word agone from which we get in English Agony. It's a term that referred to an athletic contest. If you were in an athletic contest like a race or a fight or a wrestling match, it would be called the agon because it was agonizing. It required everything in you. In fact, this word is translated as conflict in Philippians 1.30 or a great struggle in Colossians 2.1 or a fight in First Timothy 6.12. Paul would say, I have fought the good fight, meaning he says it twice there essentially. I have agonized the great agony. I've been through the contest that has left me depleted. I've left it all on the mat. That's how he refers to his opponents here. Much opposition, struggle, contest, embattled. And he didn't back down. They have no mercy. They won't let up. He won't stop. He doesn't flinch from the competition, as it were. He was bold, meaning that he didn't speak softly. The word actually means he, he spoke out loud. I mean, what would be the tendency if you just come from one city for preaching the gospel and you've been beaten and humiliated, what would be the tendency in the next one? Let's do a secret huddle. Can we do this in someone's house where nobody will see? Let's don't stir everybody up right now. Is that really necessary? He said, no, I I did the same thing. I went into the marketplace. I started preaching the gospel. I went to the synagogue. I preached the gospel. I did what I always do. I spoke openly. How could he do that? Where did his boldness come from? We had boldness in our God. In our God this is what I think is so fascinating I didn't have boldness because of the results of my preaching the results did not make me bold God made me bold not the challenging results just God this comes from him never viewing the message as being his message it was God's message to deliver he didn't view his life as his own life it was God's life it all belonged to him can we, can we just remind ourselves? A massive view of God breeds a bold conviction to speak for Him. If you have a vision of an unstoppable God, you will speak openly. You'll speak clearly. You won't be afraid. You might be personally fearful at moments what's going to come, but you're confident. God God will do what God wants to do. And in the end, his wisdom's perfect in this. I'm currently reading a book that the staff gave me for Christmas. It's a biography of the 16th, 17th century Scottish preacher named Master Robert Bruce. Not Robert the Bruce of Braveheart. Not that one. A while after him, Master Robert Bruce He he preached during the reign of the Scottish king James VI or became James I when he took over the crown in England. And there was a note in this week as I was reading through it about this God-accountable boldness that he expressed when he was preaching. Listen to it. One day, the king was seated in his gallery, surrounded by several courtiers while Bruce preached. James, referring to the king was notoriously rude during the divine service. And on this occasion, he began, as frequently happened, to talk to those about him while the sermon proceeded. Bruce paused, and the king fell silent. But upon the minister's resuming, he was guilty of a second interruption, which was checked in the same way. A third time, the king offended, whereupon Bruce turned to him and spoke, It is said to have been an expression, Bruce said, of the wisest kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes the petty kings of the earth to be silent. (laughs) That's awesome, isn't it? The author goes on and says, from this, it is evident that Bruce was no court preacher. (laughs) Listen to this next statement by the author. He said, but let not the modern reader take offense with his style. Those were times of strong measures and strong men, perhaps a future generation, more robust than ours may call the men of today, dilettante and effeminate. Bruce had a boldness, but the boldness was not in himself. The boldness wasn't about him. It was about the message and who was speaking as he was preaching. It was God. It was all about God. What gives him the boldness to turn to an interrupting king and say, you shut your mouth while I'm preaching? It was God. But this is not a boldness that's just brash or angry. It's not an attitude of arrogance towards the culture. Friends, that's not what we need to portray to our world. That's not boldness. It's confidence to go ahead and share the gospel, even though you know there's going to be backlash. You share it. You share it with kindness. You share it in compassion. You share it with firmness. But you share. You talk about it. You preach, you teach the message. You know it's not going to make your circumstances any easier. You know it's not going to win you more friends and deeper influence. But you're convinced more in the power of God than you are fearful of the persecutions of people. There's more confidence in you in the word of God to convert than fear of preaching a word that's just going to bring temporary cultural isolation. We live in a time that's growing harder and harder to speak out without there being some public shaming. It's happening all the time. It's it's almost every week now. I mean, there's even some supposed kind of left-leaning Christian in name-only blogs that like to shame people in Christianity. And they they seem to try to do it because they want to uphold some kind of character or moral standard. I think they just want to make money, it seems. Think about this, if you could see a life that had experienced hardship and opposition because of a persistent teaching of the gospel, and that hardship never really softened or silenced the teacher, and the conviction in the teacher, in the power of the message, caused him to keep investing his entire life in a people he was being persecuted for serving, would you say, that's true spiritual legitimacy? That's genuine. There's something to this. You would begin to see the true and lasting value of the gospel convinced yourself in the power of God and its legitimacy. That's a sign of significant spiritual substance. Let's finish with a third and final area to assess the presentation of God's word in evaluating its legitimacy. Just the third this is, a, this is a full one, too. Ask this question. Is the word presented from divine accountability? Is the word presented from divine accountability? Here's another indicator of true spiritual substance in the preacher. Is the word presented from divine accountability? So how do you know if, if someone sees themselves as accountable to God... Well, look at verse 3. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. There's a sense of divine accountability Paul has there. Now, I want you to see four different descriptions here of this kind of presenting the gospel message in a divinely accountable way. What's the marks of divine accountability in a preacher in how he speaks and how he lives? First, I would say biblical accuracy. Biblical accuracy. Our exhortation does not come from error. It doesn't flow from wrong-headed thinking. Error, something other than the truth. What we teach does not come out of error. Now, the word for error here could also be translated as deceit, as it is some places, but he's going to talk about deceit later, so likely he means something a bit different here. Often it is translated as something erroneous, wrongheadedness, a message where the scriptural math doesn't seem to add up to anything of biblical substance. It's error. He said, that's, that's not what comprised my teaching. Well, what, what would this look like? Well, perhaps it's where the content of the message flows from poor interpretation. Maybe you've, you've been in a setting where it doesn't seem like the preacher did his homework. And he's, he's saying things that seem to contradict other places in the Scripture. He's maybe mixing the Scripture with the culture which brings a little error with the truth, which deludes the truth. Or maybe he's mixing it with another religion, which has happened all throughout church history. It's happened all throughout biblical history, where we take what God says and we mix, mix it with what the culture wants, even religiously, and we come up with a new religion eventually. Think about this with Paul in this society, where he was in Thessalonica. This was a city who had wonderful relationships with Rome. Remember, they hadn't paid taxes for like a hundred years because of the relationship they had with Rome. But the imperial cult, where Caesar was seen as God, was dominant in this culture. And here comes Paul into this city, that's filled with all kinds of gods. It's a pluralistic city. There's so many gods all over the place. And he's saying, no, there's just one. Now, if, if you wanted to slide in, you could say, well, listen, let's, let's at least get this god into the picture of the many gods. I actually had a missionary from India once in our church, not this one, thankfully, but long ago, Stand up in front of the congregation and would tell us, and it was a, a Southern Baptist. There we go. That's distracting, isn't it? Preach among with boldness, despite the bug. So I had a missionary who was preaching and suggested that in Hinduism, the way to reach the Hindus is to just get Jesus to be one of the many gods. And, he's, and, and I'm sitting at the back thinking, what did he just say? Get him to be one of the many gods. Right, just get him to be one of the many gods. And then eventually we'll keep talking about this Jesus so they begin to see the real Jesus and they'll say, ah, he's the best of all the gods. It was hard to have lunch with that friend afterwards without bringing all of that up and asking about that issue. And I, I had to. And I said, is that really? I said, that's not the gospel. That's kind of like Paul. Wouldn't it be easy slip God in as one of the gods, so not to create a stir? But he didn't do that. He he confronted the whole cultural system. I, he couldn't preach from error. It's 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 like the idea behind Paul's comments in Second Timothy two, fourteen. And he says, remind them of these things, solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers, but be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene and among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, And they say the resurrection's already happened. That's error. You have to be diligent to make sure you're understanding the word and you're actually even calling out some who are teaching error and saying that's not the way of God. You can't preach from error. It has to be biblically accurate. Paul would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 15, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things because as you do this, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. What's the cost if we introduce error in our preaching? Even if it means We won't have to put up with so much opposition in the culture just to soften the message, change it a little bit. What if people start believing in the wrong God? Where does that end? In spiritual ruin and destruction, you can't put up with a little error. We can't affirm alternate sexual lifestyles. We can't do it. There are churches in our city who are doing that. Large churches. The largest church in our, in our Kansas City area affirms alternate sexual lifestyles because they've rejected the inerrancy of the scripture. Outright, in public, in writing. We can't do that. That leads people to a different gospel. Why would you avoid error? Why, why would you avoid error so that you're making sure you're, you're truthful? It's probably because you think you're accountable to God. I, I can't bring in error because there's a, an accountability over me. I, I didn't come preaching with error, Paul says. I, I feel as if I'm accountable to God. I think the preacher who takes pains with accuracy is likely the one who sees himself as a to, uh, accountable to a higher authority than the culture, than popularity or personal advantage, When the presentation is biblically accurate, it's a sign, the message presented is from divine accountability. There's a second mark of divine accountability. I call it moral purity. Moral purity. Where's that bug? Just, all right, we're watching. Yeah, he likes the preaching. You see it, we, our exhortation does not come from Not just error, but it doesn't come from impurity. Likely this is a reference to sexual impurity, sexual immorality. The word is used many times to refer to the kind of impurity that is aligned with immorality, sexual immorality. I won't go through all the verses, but most of the time it's linked to sexual immorality. What does this mean? When Paul's preaching, he's not seeking sexual favors. In fact, his message would not promote any kind of lifestyle that would entertain immorality or promiscuity. It's not coming from a place that would be open to any kind of immorality. In other words, what he's teaching doesn't fit with the sexual revolution that was going on around him. It was contrary to it. He was not immoral and his message would not promote any kind of immorality. And I think that's one of the reasons why the gospel of Jesus will never, and it never has been tolerated. God's truth from the beginning, at least after Genesis 3, has never been tolerated by the culture because the culture is enamored with immorality. If you were to trace the genesis of immorality in the book of Genesis, right after chapter 3, You have all kinds of immorality that emerges. Adultery, multiple marriages, homosexuality, incest. It's just one after another. You get to the book of Leviticus and you read chapters 18 through 20. It's called the Holiness Code and it's all about the morality of the people of God in contrast to the immorality of the cultures around them, you must not be like this. Our truth doesn't come from any immoral place. Because the gospel actually keeps bringing people back to a pre-Genesis kind of thinking, where God's view is supreme and he's the determiner of right and wrong, not us. And the gospel keeps pulling us back to that original way to see him, which excludes immorality. Where a man is joined to his wife as one flesh and there's no separation of that union. There's no redefining of another kind of union. Any kind of preaching that allows for unchecked immorality is not just full of error. It's a damning gospel. You can't believe it, not if it tolerates that. And why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you secretly engage immorality while you preach? Why wouldn't you secretly, you know, indulge yourself because you think you're accountable to God? And can I say this? The only thing that keeps you and me from falling into immoral sin is our own fear of God. God. And the more we live that way and the more consistent we have God in our heart and mind and the fear of God, we will run from immorality, right? There's a third mark of accountability, divine accountability. I call it personal honesty. Our exhortation doesn't come from error, doesn't come from impurity or by way of deceit. There's no deceit. It's a word that refers to being so clever and cunning that you can convince someone of something as true when it's really not true. In the original language of the day, this term was used by fishermen of their bait. You want the fish to think it's food when it's really a trap. Teachers can do that. I want you to think that this is food when it's really something to gain something for myself. It's a trap to give you what I want. It's deceit. Sometimes the word is translated as stealth. It's hidden. Do you present the message so that you will gain approval from others, the acclaim of others, exaltation from others? Do you preach so you'll keep your job It's what we preachers have to keep in mind. We want position. Do we want authority? Do we want power? Do we use the message for ourselves and not for the benefit of others? Are we double-tongued saying one thing here and another thing outside the pulpit? Do we live a different way than what we speak? The messenger of truth is a person who shuns all deception, isn't afraid of the truth, is convinced that the truth is what's best, I mean, we have to think of this. I I have to think of it regularly. Is a sermon nothing more than bait on the hook to trick people into giving me something they wouldn't want to give me if they knew the truth? Are we hunting for an audience? Is that what church is about? We're hunting for an audience so we'll give the veneer of truth, but behind it is not legitimacy. What keeps you from doing that? The applause, the praise, the influence, it's enticing. It's enticing. It's enjoyable for a time. The only thing that keeps any preacher from that is a divine sense of accountability. I I can't engage in that kind of deceit because God knows. He's not deceived. He sees. He's aware of everything. He knows why I'm doing what I'm doing. He knows why I'm saying what I'm saying the way I'm saying it. So if you feel yourself divinely accountable to God, honesty flows from that heart. Honesty flows from that mouth. Let's look at the last one. The last mark of divine accountability. It's it's spiritual accountability. Spiritual accountability, that's a mark. It's really the substance of it in verse 4. But, it's not error, it's not impurity, it's not deceit, but... Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We've been approved by God. That's a very important word, approved, dakimazo in Greek. Sometimes it's translated as analyze. Do you know how to analyze the seasons, Jesus says? Do you know how to look at it and, and be able to analyze it? It's even translated as test at times. Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it's to be, be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of a man's work. It will test it. It's also translated as examine. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Examine yourself. Second Corinthians 13.5 Can also be translated as approve. 1 Corinthians 16.3, when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If you approve, this is a really full-orbed word. It means to analyze and examine and test something with the idea of proving it to be worthy. You found an old piece of jewelry and you're wondering if it's solid gold. You take it into the jeweler and they Test it, they examine it with the aim of showing you what the reality is, the substance is. And he says, we've been tested. We've been tested and examined and analyzed so as to be entrusted with the gospel. Who did the testing? God did. How did he do it? (laughs) How does he test us? Trial? Pressure? Expectations? Demands? Are you... Can you be trusted with this? Can you be shown to be worthy to handle the gospel? And Paul says we have been. We've been approved by God, not not just by the churches. God has been testing us and showing us to be approved, approved so that we're entrusted with the gospel. It's a stewardship for us. I'm held accountable to him for what isn't mine. He's going to say, I gave you the gospel. What did you do with it? We've been entrusted with the gospel And then it's really fascinating where he goes with this. So we speak. If God has been testing and approving, then I speak as if he's the tester and the one who approves. So we speak. Not as pleasing men. What does he mean by that? Because a week ago, I was in Kansas preaching in another church, and I preached this passage. Give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men and all things, said by the same author who just wrote this verse in our text. Paul, what do you mean by that? You please all men? Right. I don't want to give any unnecessary offense to Jew or Greek so that I can actually preach the gospel to them, gain a hearing, legitimate hearing from them. In other words, I, when I go to a Jewish home, I don't bring ribs and say, hey, I'd like to share the gospel with you. That's unnecessary. So I'm not trying to to get under their skin. I want to please them in that regard. Well, that's not what he's talking about here in 1 Thessalonians. I don't please men, I don't get my message from them. I don't preach in such a way, I don't get the content of my message from the audience. I'm aware that there are unbelievers in the audience, but awareness is not my emphasis. Awareness of their presence is not the emphasis of my ministry, the gospel is the emphasis. I know they're here, so I want to make sure they hear it clearly, correctly, without any unnecessary offense, but I don't get the content from them. There's a difference in church ministry from being aware that unbelievers are present and emphasizing unbelievers as the object of our meeting. There's a difference. No, we're we're not here just to please men. We don't put all this together to please men. Why would we preach this long? Why would we pray so long? Why would we sing songs like this? And that's not, that's not what's going to generate just the pleasure of the average person. There's another reason behind it. Doesn't mean that we're trying to be offensive in any way, but we're trying to serve and please God. Right? We... We're not pleasing men, but who are we pleasing? God. Why? Why do we please God? Why do we think that that's so important? Because it's God who is constantly examining. Same word, dakimatso. He's testing to approve our hearts. Not just our actions, our hearts. He knows what's inside of us. He knows what's motivating us. And Paul says, listen, friends, I... I'm preaching to you because God entrusted me with that because he's tested me, he's approved me and I know he's always examining my heart. That's why I'm going to preach the way I do. And you know it. He must have lived with him in such a way that they knew what motivated his life. That's, that's our ministry. That's our, our work. That's how the gospel needs to be presented. That's the way you evaluate a church. Well, there's more to come in that. We'll keep unpacking that in the weeks to come. But that's a real accountability before the Lord in how we present the gospel, isn't it? Present the gospel with spiritual substance, a Godward conviction, divine accountability. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you for this time where we could enjoy. Studying the word, being exposed to it, challenged by it, evaluating our own hearts under the spotlight of scripture. I, I do pray, Father, that you would help us all to be humble before you, knowing that you are the one who examines our heart. You know where we are. You know what's going on in our soul, even at this very moment. We hide it from others, but you, you're very aware. We may not even be trying to hide it from others. We might be demonstrating a life that is not in concert with you. So I pray for divine conviction that we would live for you, not for ourselves, not for our self promotion, that we would, we would desire a congregation that wants to live under you and your spotlight, your examination, and thus your pleasure. Help us as we are constantly evaluating the legitimacy, the spiritual legitimacy of our own ministry together. We pray that we would find ourselves approved by you because Christ is the object. Jesus is the aim. His work on the cross is what we want people to see and be exposed to. We want the unsaved world to see that the forgiveness of sins is the, the major issue of their life in all the challenges they're facing sin and its presence and its enslaving nature is the issue and Christ is the only liberator so we pray for wisdom in what needs to change and how to respond and even how to affirm the ministry that you've entrusted to us Father as we approach the Lord's table now And we remind ourselves of what you have done for us. In a fresh way, remind us, no person in this room is inherently worthy to take of this. But all who are in Christ are viewed as worthy to take it, not because of our actions, but because of the divine work of Christ, absorbing your wrath on the cross, applying salvation and righteousness to our standing before you, converting our soul that we love, tr- so that we would love truth and be transformed in our behavior. I pray that as we take of the table, we will display who the body of Christ is, and we will do that in a spiritually legitimate way, with truth, under the work of your word in our hearts. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask the men to come forward as we prepare for the table.